Sir Valper, the T1 of Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, is our managing editor, making his weekly appearance, Mr. Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Because baseball is about to end, we cast our eyes to the future, or at least two weeks into the future, and the end of the regular season. To begin this episode of the podcast, I begin by asking Cameron, what teams are in a must-win situation at the moment? After answering that question and going on to establish which teams really are still in contention, we look to Cameron's piece in the electronic pages of Fangraphs from Monday regarding the ideal strategy for winning the wildcard playoff game. Cameron not only discusses that sort of thing conceptually, but we also look at the teams most likely to appear in that wildcard playoff game and discuss how they might deploy their pitchers, in particular, in optimal fashion. To say that this episode is full of intrigue would be a lesson, an understatement. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature our managing editor, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Today in the uh, electronic pages of Fangraphs, you looked ahead towards the end of the season. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing to do at this point, right? Like, it's sort of the season's at a weird thing now where uh, we're, we're focused in that direction at this point. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point we're kind of in that lull where it's not really like every game is of total paramount importance or so doing game previews of every game that could determine the outcome, but we're also you know, far enough into the season where most teams or a good chunk of teams are playing games that don't matter anymore. So, you know, we're kind of in this little in-between stage where in like a week or so or, you know, 10 days, uh, you know, the focus is going to be on every individual matchup and trying to squeeze every last win out of all these games. Right now, it's just like, yeah, these games are important. Hope they win. Yeah, that's how it is for most of the teams. I mean, what are the teams now, uh, before we get, because you, you wrote this uh, this piece on the play-in game, Um which is an interesting discussion insofar as, um, I guess, with the exception of a couple of game 163s that have happened, um, it's uh, uncharted territory. Um, or maybe it's slightly charted territory, but we can we still have things to learn about it. Um, but what are the teams right now that are playing the most crucial games at this point? Like games that are, that are actually like uh, – or teams we could say are in must-win situations at this point. Yeah, so I think the Tigers uh, are probably, you know, would be at the top of that list. I mean, they just blew a game against Cleveland yesterday that they should have won. Uh, I mean, you should win every game against Cleveland right now. They're a pretty terrible team. But, I mean, Detroit took a three-run lead in the ninth inning uh, and blew that one late. So, you know, that's a tough loss. They're playing the White Sox today in a makeup of the, the rainout game from last week. So, you know, they're two games behind the White Sox. Um, they probably need to win, you know, they don't need to win this game. It would be super helpful to win this game. Because uh, if they lose, they fall three games back, uh, you know, with 15 or so to play. That's a, that's a tough road to hoe with a Chicago team that's pretty good and probably won't just give the division away. So um, Detroit's probably near the top of the list. Uh, I think St. Louis is up there as well, although they, they did decent work against uh, Los Angeles this weekend, so they've uh, helped their position a little bit. But they're still somewhat vulnerable to a run from the Brewers or the Dodgers. Um, down the stretch. So St. Louis and Detroit are probably the two teams that need to win the most. You could throw Tampa Bay in there as well. Um, but those are the teams that, you know, the games are of 
of most importance to them. Yeah, and I guess it should be noted about uh, that Chicago-Detroit, uh, not only the game that's happening today, but also their sort of positioning in general, is that whichever team finishes second place there is not going to qualify for the play-in game. Well, it's not 100% true. I mean, it's possible that Chicago uh, and Detroit could both get really hot, and Oakland and Baltimore and Tampa could fade. Um, so, but it's unlikely, right? So, like, the, the division winner will probably, or the, the team that doesn't win the division will likely not make the playoffs. So those two teams are probably fighting for one playoff spot, and because of the new playoff structure, they're fighting for a pretty valuable playoff spot in that they're already in, uh, which is a little different than Baltimore and Tampa Bay and Oakland and even St. Louis. Uh, who are fighting for a chance to have a one-game playoff to get into the playoffs. Now, Bill uh, Bill Petty wrote something of late. Uh, I think it was just in the last week, maybe, um, or the last two, two weeks, uh, with regard to uh, Pythagorean standings um, relative to, I guess, rest-of-season performance. Yeah. Um, and I believe the crux of that article was that because teams react to their standings um, to their place in the standings about midway through the season that, uh, I guess, expected winning percentages um, are um, they're problematized because of that. Yeah, I mean, this is a drum that I've been beating for a while. I don't really like the Pythagorean expectation. I don't think it really tells us what people use it for. I think it's overused, and it's become a crutch in the sabermetric community um, where people just point to Pythag and think, oh, well, that's a team true talent level when, you know, there's no real reason to draw a line at runs scored and runs allowed. If you if you want to get away from wins, uh, you know, in terms of thinking that there's too much context and non-predictive things and win, actual wins and losses, why are you stopping at runs scored and runs allowed? Why aren't you going to the base components of hits and runs and strikeouts? And I mean, it's just a very arbitrary place to draw a line and assume that it's a measure of true talent when it includes some context things and not others. Um, but I think what Bill's point was and, you know, kind of the, the conclusion of the article is that at this point in the season, Pythagora doesn't tell us much that we don't already know. So we know that the Orioles have overperformed uh, in one run game, the next training games, but that doesn't really tell us anything about what's going to happen going forward. And the variance around predicting any team's uh, performance in a you know one month stretch is pretty wide anyway. So even if we said, okay, we think the Orioles are more of a 450 team than a 550 team, that means that their expected winning percentage in September is somewhere between 350 and 650, which means they could make the playoffs or they couldn't make the playoffs. I mean, that's not really a useful thing to know. Like, And it doesn't add any in- information that we don't already have. As a team like uh, the Dodgers made a lot of moves um, uh, up to and um, and actually after that, you know, the first uh, trade deadline. Of course, probably their biggest move was after it um, with the, the move that sent Gonzalez and Beckett and Crawford and uh, and Nick Punto. Uh, he should not and be Nick ignored. Punto. And Nick Punto, he should not be ignored, as Mike Exesa noted. Uh, uh, not too long ago on our uh, on the site, um, does a team like that are are the Pythagorean expectations perhaps even less valuable because of the the um, roster uh, the roster maneuverings that have that have occurred over the last month or two? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of those things where Pythag really stops being useful in the end of the season when teams have made drastic roster changes. I mean, I think the Dodgers have turned over 40% of their roster since the season started. So, you know, when we look at how they did in April and May, that's not very informative. <laughs> the fact that, uh, you know, Jerry Hairston uh, did well in May doesn't help us when he's on the disabled list. So, you know, I think in, in looking at a team's true talent level and trying to figure out what they're going to do, uh, Pythag kind of stands there as this, uh, hey, look at me, I'm an easy thing to use. 
but it's not so easy to use or so correct that it should be the default uh, assumption of what a team's performance is going to be going forward. Okay, and then uh, just one last team in terms of their status uh, with regard to the playoffs now. Um, of some interest is the, the recent run, or maybe like now the month-long run, of the Milwaukee Brewers, a team that um, after uh, losing Prince Fielder, of course, uh, to free agency in the offseason, and then losing like some kind of important players in – uh, Matt Gamble, who was their starting first baseman, in Alex Gonzalez, who was their starting shortstop, and then uh, Chris Narvison, who you know was a you know a not insignificant part of their uh, their pitching plan entering the season, and then trading away Zach Grinke at the deadline, uh, they've somehow managed, uh, I, I think, to be one of probably the best teams over the last month. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you can basically point to four players and say, this is how the Brewers have done it. Aramis Ramirez has been awesome in the second half of the season. He's really, I mean, his total numbers for the whole year are really good. I think he's up almost to 6-4. Uh, you know, Aramis Ramirez has turned out to be one of the better pre-agent signings from last winter, which is, you know, a bit of a surprise to me. I, I didn't like that signing at all. I thought he was an older guy at the, at the end of his career, um, who was trending, who's trending the wrong way, didn't have a good body, wasn't going to age well. Uh, Aramis Ramirez has been better than Prince Fielder this year, so... In swapping out fielder for Ramos Ramirez, they actually got better, which I don't think people are talking enough about. Um, and then, you know, as we talked about with the pitching, you know, they lost Darvison, they traded away Granky, they released Randy Wolf, but in all three cases, they've replaced them with guys who've been even better. So they moved Marco Estrada to the rotation. He's been awesome lately. Um, Michael Fires obviously had that really good run when he came up and didn't give up any home runs for a long time. He's regressed a little bit, but overall, his season's still been really good. Mark Rogers was terrific after they called him up from the bullpen. Or from the minor league. So, um, you know, Willie Peralta was fantastic for them yesterday. Uh, so I, I think the Brewers have gotten a, a wave of young pitching that has pitched even better than the veterans they were counting on. And Aramis Ramirez has been an upgrade over Prince Fielder. So you put those things together, and, you know, it's a team that should have been a contender um, with all those things going right. And, you know, it's really the bullpen collapses of John Axford and Francisco Rodriguez that have kept them out of the playoffs. Yeah, I was talking with a, a Brewers fan yesterday, and he was saying that if ever he wants to uh, depress himself, he just looks at um, the amount of games that the the Brewers would, uh, you know, would have won at this point if they had lost only like a normal number of blown saves or blown only, yeah. a, you know, like only a, a normal number of saves. Yeah, there was like a month there where their bullpen couldn't hold a lead to save their life, and it wasn't just Axford. I mean, Axford was bad, but K. Rod has been terrible this year. Just, I mean, one of the worst setup guys in baseball, uh, especially for a guy making eight or nine million dollars. So the the two of them as like co-closers and high leverage relievers melting down at the same time uh, really did a lot of damage to the Brewers. Okay, well, l- let's get to, we've sort of, uh, I guess, uh, established some teams that are on the fringes of playoff contention or, you know, who are playing games that are as important now as, as they will be, you know, leading up to the end of the season. Um. Leading up to the end of the season, that, that brings us to the question of the play, the play-in game. Uh, there will be two teams in each of the leagues that will qualify for this game. And it's a winner-takes-all situation. Um, whoever wins that game uh, will be entered into the playoffs as the wildcard team. Whoever loses, uh, their season is done. And it's interesting, of course, because rarely do we find in baseball situations where uh, one game has this much importance. Um, so we haven't seen... We haven't necessarily seen. Uh, we don't have a great, I guess, uh, 
history of data of the way the teams go about this or the way that teams could optimally go about this. Now, you wrote an article leading up to the All-Star game um, uh, that uh, pointed to how, how a manager might best manage uh, the roster and the bullpen for that. I'll start off by asking this question. How is optimizing a, a roster for the play-in game, how is it similar uh, to or different from doing it for the All-Star game? So I think the main difference is that in the play-in game, it's definitely winner-take-all. It isn't the final game of the season, or it's not the only, it doesn't stand alone. So the All-Star game is the only All-Star game. There's nothing that you care about the next day. Um, it is kind of a, a being unto itself. The play-in game, uh, there's only that way if you lose. You shouldn't be planning on losing. So you're, you want to win at all costs while also keeping an eye on the fact that there are scenarios uh, in which you advance to the next round and have wounded yourself in winning that game uh, to a larger degree than it was worth it, and then you get eliminated in the in the first round of the playoffs because you overextend yourself to win the play-in game in a way that might not have been necessary. I mean, you need to extend yourself as far as necessary to win the play-in game because losing it doesn't do you any good. But there is a level of uh, overcommitment to that play-in game that can then harm you that you don't necessarily need to take. And I guess that's kind of the theory behind the uh, use the starters last theory that I presented today, is that, you know, there's a decent chance, even though the Braves' offense isn't amazing, that they're, you know, Jason Hayward and Dan Ogla and Chipper Jones could go out and just mash a whole bunch of home runs early in the game. And by the third inning, the Braves could be up 11-2. to two. And if they had started Chris Medlin or Tim Hudson in that game, all of a sudden they're throwing very low leverage innings in a situation that doesn't matter, um, and they've essentially burned a playoff start in the first round from one of those two guys because they won't be available to come back and pitch on you know two or three days rest. So whichever guy started the playing game would be starting game three of the playoffs uh, and only getting one start in that first round. Whereas you start the relievers first, and because of the way the off days work, you can essentially bring them back for game one and have a fully normal bullpen uh, by starting guys like Kimbrell and Ventures at the beginning of the game and then deciding which of your starters you want to use, whether it's Medlin if the game is close or Hudson or Mahomes or Minor or Hanson if it's not close, uh, you can kind of adjust which innings get soaked up by the starting pitcher at the end of the game based on the score, and you can't really know that ahead of time. So so the, the thing that most distinguishes it from a regular season game in this case is is how the manager ought to deploy his pitching staff. Yeah, I mean, essentially what you're trying to figure out is how do you want to distribute the nine innings among your pitchers. And so in a game where you have to win or your season ends, you certainly want as many of those innings as possible to go to your best pitchers. Um, so Craig Kimbrell for the Braves or, uh, you know, if the Reds were in this role with Chapman, or whoever your best pitcher is, it's almost certainly not your starting pitcher. It's not your best starting pitcher. I mean, you most teams have two or three relievers better than their best starting pitchers. Um, the Orioles and A's are other examples where their bullpens are significantly better than their rotations. Uh, the A's have Brett Anderson, who might qualify as better than any of their relievers, but, you know, at the same time, he's a guy you want available to make two starts in the division series when you can't run this out there every day. You can't do this in a five-game series and just lean on your relievers. But, you know, especially in a team like the Braves situation where they know they're going to be in the play-in game or they're pretty likely to be in the play-in game, they can start planning for this ahead of time and say, okay, I'm going to give my bullpen two days rest before the end of the regular season, and then there's an off day, and then there's this play-in game. So they're not going to have pitched in three days. So if I ask them to throw 35, 40 pitches, it's okay, especially because I have a day off tomorrow. So, you know, if you're asking them to throw once in five days, you can extend them a little further. Now, when you say a reliever, uh, most teams have a reliever to better than their best starting pitcher. Do you mean, in, in that case, on a per-inning basis? 
Oh, I, yeah, or on a per batter face basis. Yeah. I mean, I think even if you look at Detroit, Justin Verlander is clearly the best pitcher overall on Detroit and the most talented. No one can argue with that. But, you know, if you have a right-handed batter up there and you want to get someone out, you're probably better off with Octavio Dotel than Justin Verlander. And, you know, against the left-hander, definitely not. You don't want Dotel in there against the lefty. Um, so Verlander is probably the best choice to pitch multiple innings. But in a per-batter situation, especially if you're playing the matchups or you have the ability to play the matchups, uh, the best starting pitcher in baseball is about as good as a quality setup guy, and he's not nearly as good as the, the true relief aces, the Kimbrels and the Chapmans, those type of guys. Uh, they're better. I mean, you know, I think if you look at Craig Kimbrell's career stats, his ERA minus is 40. Pedro Martinez in 1999 and 2000, which is generally considered to be the best stretch of starting pitching in baseball history, had an ERA minus of 38. So Kimbrell, in his career, uh-huh. is as good as peak Pedro. <laughs> you, you want to use that as often as possible. Right, but how would, uh, if Pedro were deployed in a way similar to Craig Kimball, we can, I think we could assume that his number, his career numbers would have been better. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not making an argument for talent, uh, uh, you know, or if we had moved Pedro to the bullpen, what his numbers would have been. But the question is more of how you're going to deploy them and the roles that they're being used. So the odds are pretty good that you're not going to turn Tim Hudson into a one-inning reliever for the playoffs. You're either going to use him as a five, six, seven inning guy because of his ability to get hitters from both sides of the play out and maximize that skill set. Uh, or you're, you know, you're not going to turn him into a Craig Kimball. You already have a Craig Kimball for that role. Um, so while Hudson might have a tr- better true talent level and Kimball might not be able to do what Hudson can do in one inning or over seven innings, the same is likely true where Hudson couldn't do over what Kimball can do over one inning. Um, now you have a situation too where uh, you have to consider the human element to this, I assume, or yeah. I mean, or maybe the answer is you don't have to. But I'm curious because we know that um, one of the arguments against um, sort of out and out bullpen optimization, you know, which would be, uh, you know, which you know was, would invoke the idea of the relief face pitching the highest leverage innings, which are not always, you know, the last three outs of a ball game. Um, one of the arguments against that is that. Uh, Players, baseball players, especially since you know there's a lot of anxiety surrounding um, their their job uh, and you know the, the, under the conditions under which they work, uh, that they respond well to, to having defined roles. Or generally speaking, they do. Um, both players and coaches have said something like this. Uh, now I'm curious in a in a situation like this that you're proposing, um, you know, where you would have uh, pitchers like Craig Kimbrell or Johnny Venters, in this case uh, for the Braves. Um, who are very likely to, to qualify for that play-in play game. Um, what do you think uh, – how do you think the idea of roles and the human element plays into this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to the defined role, and uh, that's actually the reason I decided to, in the post I, I noted that I would announce Kimbrell as the starter and not Venters or O'Flaherty or one of these other guys because I think there is something to going to Craig Kimbrell and saying, look, you're used to starting an inning with no one on base. You're used to coming into a giant roar from the crowd. Uh, and you're used to throwing as hard as you can, you know, for one inning or sometimes two, not not that often, but occasionally pitching a second inning. Uh, so we're going to give you a situation that exactly mimics that situation. It's just at the beginning of the game instead of the end. So Craig Kimbrell would know going into that play-in game, I'm coming out of the bullpen, there's no one on base, I'm going to pitch, the crowd's going to yell, and then I'm going to, you know, try and get six outs. So you can tell them ahead of time. Your goal is to go two innings, uh, and they're going to be, uh, you know, the same – Intensity is if you pitched, 
you know, the ninth inning of a regular season game, the crowd's going to be fired up. At the, at the beginning, the Braves are probably going to have home field advantage in this situation. Um, so I think you'd be able to define Kimbrell's role pretty well, and it would match the closing situation fairly well. Guys like Ventures and O'Flaherty and Christian Martinez have been more flexible throughout the season and have been, you know, kind of matchup guys available when necessary. So I don't think bringing them in in the third or the fourth or the fifth is really going to make a big difference to them versus pitching the sixth or the seventh or the eighth. Uh, so I'd say it's a little less necessary. But, you know, in a guy like Kimberl situation, I don't think that pitching the first and second is that much different than pitching the eighth and ninth. Yeah, is there any way um, to compare the leverage index or the, you know, the importance of the you know, the first batter of the play-in game to anything that might occur earlier, in, you know, in the first 162 games of the season? Is there is there any way to compare those things? Yeah, so uh, Dave Zuman over the Hardball Times has created something called Championship Leverage Index or Championship Playoff uh, added. So essentially it looks at your odds of winning the World Series at any point. So at the beginning of the year, you know, it's obviously a lot less than in the playoffs. A uh, regular season game means a lot less. A game one means a lot less than a game seven. Um, and so we've essentially looked at the change in win World Series expectancy based on the situation. Uh, so you could note that using that, something like that, like a World Series adjusted leverage index, the the leverage of the first and second innings in a game 163 or this wild card play-in game would be significantly higher than the World Series leverage of any ninth inning game during the regular season all year long. Is there any way uh, to get to get those metrics, or is that something that needs to sort of be calculated ad hoc? Uh, good question. We, you know, we you could email students and see if he's interested in running those. I could make a fun article. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, put that on our to-do list. Yeah, and I, you know, I will say, like, before we totally get away from this topic, I do think there are. So, to me, I see like the the argument against uh, the bullpen play-in game is essentially the argument for uh, not changing things from the status quo in that. You know, if you're going to use a guy like Chris Medlin or Tim Hudson, maybe there is some performance decline if you have to have him warm up in the third inning and you're not sure that he's going to pitch that day. So, like, the one, I would say, flaw with my strategy, if you really buy into it from the human element, is that I'm not deciding which starter is going to pitch until I see what the score is in the third or fourth inning, and then I'm telling Medlin or Hudson or Paul Mahom or whoever it is to start warming up and be ready to come in in the sixth or seventh inning. That situation is significantly different than... Uh, what their normal regular season routine is. Um, the fact that they would come to the ballpark not knowing that day whether they were going to pitch or not could influence their uh, performance. So, you know, I think if you're going to say that this, this plan has one significant flaw, that's it. And, you know, we might as well highlight the, the flaw since you brought up the human in, instinct part of it. Um, I think if there's a reason to not do this, worrying that Hudson or Medlin or one of those guys would be thrown off by having to warm up in the bullpen would be the main reason. Although I would say that that's the main reason for putting Medlin in in that situation is he started the year in the bullpen, he's pitched out of the bullpen a decent amount in his major league career. So it shouldn't be that different to something he's already done before. Yeah. Now, uh, I guess in terms of applying this practically, you mentioned already some, you know, you use the Atlanta Braves as an example, and, and that makes a lot of sense because they don't really appear to be in a position to win the division now, even after sweeping the Nationals. Um, they're still five and a half games back. Uh, the sort of generic uh, playoff odds per cool standings suggest that the Nationals still have uh, over a 95% chance of winning the division, um, which puts the Braves, you know, squarely in place to to participate in that uh, play-in game. Um, I'm curious, though, of all the teams that are sort of 
likely to, or at least have you know a decent opportunity of qualifying for the playing game. Knowing the managers, knowing the organizations, do you think there's a team that's likely to embrace the strategy? I think there's. So I, I use the Braves as the example because they're the most likely to know ahead of time and be able to prep for this, you know, without having those last couple days of the regular season mean anything. Uh, but I think if we're looking at a team that might actually employ this, it's probably either the Orioles or the A's. Uh, you know, in both situations, the, the Orioles and A's are far enough ahead of the rest of the AL wildcard contenders that, you know, it seems possible that they could go into that last weekend uh, or that last three games, that Monday through Wednesday, knowing that they're either going to win their division or end up in the play-in game. Um, and, you know, both could potentially be far enough back in their division where those games might not matter all that much where they could use the same strategy. The Orioles' bullpen has obviously gotten a lot of focus for their, you know, record and one-run games and how well they've performed in extra innings. Uh, and their starting rotation is not that good. I mean, I think if you pointed to the Orioles and tried to figure out who's going to start a, a wild-card play-in game for them, it's probably Wei Yin Chen, probably, uh, unless they're facing a team with a whole bunch of right-handed mashers. Like, you know, if they went up against the White Sox, regarding Wei Yin Chen might not be a very good idea. Um, so, you know, trying to figure out their which guy you would even hand the ball to in a winner-take-all game is, is a little bit tough. And the bullpen's been so good um, that, you know, I think they're a possibility. And then, you know, the A's, they're um, known for going out of the box. They're probably the least traditional team. Maybe you could throw Tampa Bay in the mix. But, you know, they're one of the two least traditional teams in baseball and how they operate and the decisions they make. Um, they do have Brett Anderson, who would be, you know, kind of that classic ace that you'd want to hand the ball to. But they also have a deep bullpen full of guys who could play the matchups and, uh, they might decide, you know what, let's uh, hold off on using Anderson unless we have to use him. If it's a close game and if it's a sixth inning, then we'll bring him in and we'll get those five innings out of him. But if we don't have to use him, we can get an early lead and we can save Anderson for game one of the NLD, or the ALDS, then that's the best result all around. Yeah, I I have a hard time knowing what I know of Buckshaw Walter, uh, imagining that he would stray uh, far and wide from the traditional setup. Maybe. I, I think that what we've seen before is traditional managers, uh, don't, they kind of throw the book out a little bit when it comes to the playoffs. So we basically saw Joe Girardi do this last year in Game 5 of the ALC, or the ALDS. Uh, they pulled Ivan Nova after two innings and went with a bullpen game. They said it was because Ivan Nova had a sore shoulder, whether that was true or not, or whether they just you know, wanted to do this bullpen game thing is uh, up for question. Um, but essentially they... Uh, had uh, eight pitchers, I think, get through nine innings. None of them faced more than nine batters. So no pitcher faced the lineup more than once. Um, and, you know, they tried this, and it basically worked. They held the Tigers to three runs. They lost because they only scored two. And uh, Nova gave up two of those runs in the first inning. So their bullpen uh, pitched seven innings and gave up one run. Uh, C.T. Sabathi was part of that bullpen. He was actually the guy who gave up the run. Uh, but they also used Phil Hughes and Rafael Soriano and David Robertson and Mariano Rivera. They just kind of ran through their deep bullpen. They played the matchups with Boone Logan in the third inning. Um, so, you know, I don't think Joe Girardi is like, you know, a Joe Madden kind of uh, anti-traditional thinking, uh, you know, forward-thinking kind of manager, but he was willing to try this last year when, when it was necessary. Yeah. All right. Well noted then. Um, it, it should be uh, also noted that um, as we look uh, to the future, um, one of the things that uh, – that uh, you released in the past week that, or that we released at the site, and much of it, uh, I think, courtesy Brandon Warren, if I'm not mistaken, was a leaderboard of free agents. Yep. Um, maybe uh, talk about that briefly and, and what, what that allows people. 
So basically, it's a custom leaderboard built on the Fangraphs leaderboards that is uh, every player eligible for free agency or who has a team option that we think will be declined uh, or a player option that we think they'll exercise. So, um, you know, a guy like Jake TV is on the list because the White Sox hold a $22 million team option for 2013 with a $4 million buyout. At $18 million for one year, it's uh, worth guessing that they're going to decline that option. Um, we can't know for sure right now, but we think that uh, it's likely that TV is going to hit the free agent market. So, you know, we had to make some calls on some guys. But essentially, uh, the players that you would reasonably expect to be free agent eligible this winter are all on one page. So you can sort them by position, by any kind of filter you want using the filter. So if you want to see guys who had, you know, 15 more over the last three years, you can do that. If you want to see shortstops with a 75 WRC plus or better, you can do that. Um, you can basically use all the tools of the Fangraphs leaderboard to play around with any players to be eligible for free agency this winter. So um, if you're looking into, you know, potential off-season plans for your favorite team or coming up with, you know, wild trade scenarios that you're going to put into uh, slideshow form for some unknown uh, website that likes to do those, then this is the tool for you. Yeah, and it should be noted, you, you mentioned shortstops. I think you also uh, tweeted about this. Um if, you're, if your team is looking for a free agent shortstop or had plans originally to do so this offseason, uh, they might be disappointed with the crop that is being released into free agency. Uh, yeah, it's a really terrible crop for infielders in general. I mean, shortstops are especially bad, but I think uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith at the MLB Trade Rumors took this free agent custom leaderboard and the post over there, and he noted that uh, first baseman in general, uh, or infielders in general, there's Adam LaRoche who's available as a first baseman, after that, the next best infielder by 2012 war is Jeff Kepinger. And then number three is Brandon Inge, who got released by the Tigers midseason and just had shoulder surgery. So, you know, not a banner year to be finding infielders. No, it, does, it doesn't look like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, anyway, a useful, useful uh, tool that uh, for, I guess, in this particular case, for uh, limiting the lack of options available uh, in most positions. Although Josh Hamilton is available, so... Yeah, I mean, the outfield crop's actually the deepest I remember in, you know, a long time. I mean, there's probably 10 or 15 reasonable free agent outfield options right. before you start picking at, like, fourth outfielders. So, you know, if you're shopping for an outfielder this winter, score. If you're shopping for anything else, you're screwed. Okay. Uh, now, anything else uh, that uh, we've omitted from this episode that uh, needs to be included? Well, I don't think we covered everything uh, alive. But I guess yeah. things that need to be included uh, is a nice little filter there. So we probably covered everything that needs to be in the Fangraphs podcast. Yeah. Um, and we can stop talking now. Oh, yeah. Let, let's do that then. Uh, but uh, before we do that, we'll, we will say thank you to you, Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.